Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. What would happen if the Farm Bill changes requirements for its food stamps program? What would happen to recipients? Imagine taking that off the table so you're already struggling with the amount of help you get. From the New England News Collaborative, this is Next. We'll look at how proposed changes to this program are being tested in New England. Also, do you love our New England landscape? Well, thank a beaver. Beavers, too, have permanently shaped the course of biology and geology. They have reformed rivers, needed meadows, filled valleys. We built our civilization atop the sediment they left behind. Coming up, we'll learn from the master dam builders. And we'll explore what we can learn from the battle to tame acid rain. It doesn't get any better than that. That's environmental law and policy at its best. And we'll hear about a theater troupe performing in an unlikely space. We're in a, a turn-of-the-century opera house. The building's 100 years old. There's uh, solid wooden seats everywhere. There's a, a balcony section. There's a line physically separating two countries in the middle of the floor. It's next. Next is powered by the New England News Collaborative. Eight public media companies coming together to tell the story of a changing region with support from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. I'm John Dankosky. Thanks so much for joining us. Coming up, we're going to speak with the Consul General of Canada in New York about the relationship between the U.S. and Canada. During that conversation, we discussed an issue that's important to many in New England, dairy farming. Consul General Phyllis Yaffe described a system of supply management that supports the dairy industry in Canada, ensuring that farmers only produce what's going to be sold. And she says the American way of supporting farmers is a bit different. The United States does it a totally different way. The Farm Bill, which is larger than the economy of Canada, is the way that you support dairy farmers or farmers in general. And so farmers get their, you know, the amount they get out of the Farm Bill to keep them in business. It may not be enough or it may be too much in some areas. That's hard for me to judge, but it is a different system. It's different, all right. Not just that farmers rely on this very politically charged appropriation, but that it's the same bill that funds the Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program, otherwise known as SNAP. That's the program still commonly thought of as food stamps, although it's been a decade since that name changed. Now, right now, there's a House version and a Senate version of the Farm Bill in Washington, and they differ in important ways. In the House version of the bill, it would change the requirements to receive the SNAP benefits, making them much tougher. The Senate version doesn't include these changes. Now, we wanted to look at what these changes could mean for residents of New England. A lot of people here receive benefits in our region, 1.6 million in 2017. They're also located mostly in urban centers where there's a dearth of healthy, fresh food available to families that's also affordable. In recent years, farmers' markets have started to address that need, but uncertainty around the SNAP program means that relationship could slip away. Connecticut Public Radio's Frankie Graziano reports from Hartford. So this is the Billings Forge Apartments. We're right in the middle of the community garden that's managed by the residents as well. Jocelyn Serta manages the farmer's market at Billings Forge in Hartford. She says accepting SNAP electronic benefit transfer cards is central to their business. A majority of our customer base are SNAP users. 39. 
Nikki Knowles represents one of the more than 177,000 households in Connecticut using SNAP benefits. She not only makes SNAP card payments at the farmer's market, but she also works at one to help administer the payments. The minimum wage in Connecticut is not good enough to actually have a good living if you're not able to receive any kind of assistance from the state. So even if you do have a job, I don't think that means that you should not be able to eat well or actually have healthy food to eat or you should just be subject to McDonald's and Burger King, which is not really healthy for you or your kids. When you shop at Hartford's five major farmers markets and spend $20 or less on your SNAP card, you get to double what you put in. For someone like Knowles, shopping at a place that will essentially double your money makes all the difference. That's a lot for people if you have more than one kid in the house because it doubles. Even though that some of the local stuff might seem like it costs more, if you're using your Fresh Snap or your EBT card, it's basically like you're paying half price. But that's a benefit that's under threat for about 1,700 farmers markets elsewhere in the country. While Hartford won't be affected, Many other markets are losing their ability to accept SNAP debit cards because a tech company called Novodia lost the federal contract to provide the card processing service. And the card processing fiasco is just the latest problem facing the SNAP community. It follows an unsuccessful proposal from President Donald Trump earlier this year to cut the program by $200 billion. And the United States House of Representatives, they may soon propose changes to the Farm Bill that could put more stringent work requirements on SNAP users. I can't speak on the majority of the markets, uh, but we have a high percentage of SNAP Here. users that attend yep. the market. Serta, the manager who works the farmer's market at Billings Forge, says the number of SNAP beneficiaries that use their card at her market has tripled since 2014. Imagine what that would look like if, you know, these SNAP users can't attend the market. It affects those families. It also affects the farmer families, you know, and it affects the farmer's market. Lorenza Christian Jr. is a co-manager at the Frog Hollow Market on Laurel Street. We got the three sisters, which is a Native American planting, consisting of scorn, corn, squash, and string beans. He says his market has only processed one or two snap sales in the past two years it's been opened. He says that's likely because the market is new and hasn't had a ton of overall sales. Still, the snap market is one he covets. A lot of people spending a lot of money in grocery stores buying food from out of state, out of country even, with SNAP benefits. And if we can capture those SNAP benefits, we can effectively capture some of that money right in here in our own city, state, and government. SNAP user Nikki Knowles confirms that sentiment. She'd rather shop at a farmer's market than local grocery stores. The stuff that you find in those big grocery stores is shipped all over the country and actually exported from out of the country. So you don't really know exactly what you're actually putting in your body. You don't know what chemicals are put on it. You don't know the shelf life. You don't know when it's been picked or really where it's been picked from. Recently, the USDA announced that a coalition of nonprofits will step in to provide electronic benefits transfer services in Novodia's wake, but only until the end of August. Meanwhile, the final version of the Farm Bill, the one that may tighten work requirements, is far from certain. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Frankie Graziano. As Frankie mentioned there, the House version of this bill includes a contentious provision that would change work requirements for SNAP benefits. The state of Maine is in the middle of this debate because these restrictions were first adopted in that state some time ago. Maine Public Radio's Willis Ryder-Arnold has our story. Genevieve Flores sits in the kitchen of her Kittery apartment in the top half of a rehabbed barn. Photos of her four kids grace the wall over her right shoulder. An entire wall across from her is tiled with their drawings. 
Flores is a former registered nurse with four kids who receives aid through the SNAP program. She says food stamps account for about a third of her income. So imagine taking that off the table so you're already struggling with the amount of help you get. That, like, I can't imagine, like, homelessness is for real. Flores says she's experienced homelessness herself and is a survivor of intimate partner violence, the emotional and mental scars of which limit her ability to work. She says increased work requirements, like those proposed in the House Farm Bill, don't acknowledge the struggle some face in trying to seek government assistance. I think it's just really hard for um, people to have to go ask for help and then to have to justify their help, their need for help by having to disclose really traumatic things. Flores becomes visibly emotional as she explains why she struggles to meet work requirements Maine rolled out years ago and that were held up by some as a model for proposed changes on a national scale. The changes also include overhauling the program's educational component and eliminating categorical eligibility, which allows states to slowly phase out SNAP benefits, avoiding what's known as the welfare cliff. Supporters, such as 2nd District Congressman Bruce Poliquin of Maine, say these measures inspire people to lift themselves out of poverty. If you're able to work, we need to be compassionate and request people, require people to work to lift themselves out of poverty. In May of this year, Poliquin championed their inclusion from the House Farm Bill from the congressional floor and chided reports that he says mischaracterized them. My work requirement against what the media has reported and continues to report has there are no cuts to food stamps uh, by imposing these, um, uh, these work requirements. It is not compassionate to take people's food away and they magically find a job. Maine Equal Justice Partners' Kathy Kilrain Del Rio says the proposed food stamp requirements will make people's lives harder across the country. She says studies indicate harsher requirements imposed in Maine simply don't predict success for SNAP recipients on a national scale. They don't result in people getting jobs, and they don't result in people um, moving out of poverty. They just make people's lives more difficult. They make people hungry while they're struggling with all those challenges. Del Rio's organization argues that the increase in the numbers of people getting off assistance is the result of an improving economy, not work requirements or other restrictions. The group says when waivers were dropped by the LePage administration, more than 9,000 people benefiting from SNAP lost assistance within months. From our Kittery apartment, Flores concedes the proposed restrictions might work for a small portion of those seeking assistance, but not for most. I think when people are making these um, policies, they need to really look at the bigger picture and look at the domino effect of what's really going to happen. The House has recommended the Farm Bill to committee. A final vote on the bill is scheduled to take place in September. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Willis Ryder-Arnold. Coming up, the history of how beavers shaped our region. It's next. Next is made possible in part by our founding supporters who believe in the power of collaborative news coverage including the Common Sense Fund, supporting the New England News Collaborative in its coverage of climate change and global warming. It takes a lot of work to keep our region's ecosystems healthy. In just a minute, we're going to learn about the role that one eager animal plays. But first, Vermont Public Radio's John Dillon brings us a story about how science shaped public policy and how that has helped our forests. We're going to start back in the 1970s when a new term hit the public consciousness, 
acid rain. Scientists found that rain, 100 times more acidic than normal, was harming the mountain forests of New England and New York. The pollution was linked to fossil fuel plants in the Midwest, and that prompted change. Now, as John Dillon reports, a new study shows a part of this impact. Red spruce trees are starting to recover. On a steep slope in the Green Mountains, forest researcher Alexander Kasiba does a kind of medical exam on a red spruce tree. Just measure it to see if I've... Kasiba uses a long drill-like instrument to extract a narrow slice of tree all the way into the core. That's just the sound it makes. It's just friction with the uh, pushing through because it's basically cutting the wood as it goes through. Moment of truth. This sample backs up what Kasiba and her colleagues observed in a recent study of red spruce in five northeastern states. After decades of decline, the trees are healthy again. It looks like the recent growth is quite large, and if you go back a decade, they start getting a lot smaller, and even another decade, they're, they're really tiny. They're incredibly small. Indeed, three decades ago, the news was much more grim. Millions of trees like this one were dying, their needles red and their growth stunted. The reason was acid rain. It's caused when pollutants released by fossil fuel plants downwind of New England chemically combine with precipitation and leach calcium out of the soil. The calcium depletion doesn't directly kill the trees, but makes them susceptible to stress and injury from cold winters. As recently as 2003, a deep freeze injured red spruce trees around New England. 65% or more of the current year foliage died that year. Paul Schaberg is a U.S. Forest Service scientist who has studied the spruce decline. He says images of dead and dying red spruce forests in New England helped build the case for the 1990 Clean Air Act. That law, signed by the first President Bush, limited emissions of sulfur dioxide and nitrogen dioxide, the precursors of acid rain. Today, the recovery is impressive. It's real, it's recent, and it's broad scale. Schaberg worked with Ali Kosaba on the recent research and has studied acid rain and forest decline for decades. It's a, a great uh, scientific arc of, of monitoring, doing scientific research, informing policy, monitoring some more, um, and with some great surprises like Ali's work showing this rebound in this species that was, you know, the, the epitome of, uh, of an impact. It doesn't get any better than that. That's environmental law and policy at its best. Patrick Parento teaches environmental law at Vermont Law School. He says the years of research helped prove the value of science in shaping environmental policy. He says it's an important point to remember, as some in Congress and in the Trump administration question the science behind climate change research. Science is the key. Getting that information into the public debate and basing decisions on facts and not myth, that's critical. Understanding the science around acid rain and its environmental impacts took years. Gene Likens first documented acid rain in the 1960s at the Hubbard Brook Experimental Forest in New Hampshire. Now in his 80s, Likens says the rain, snow, and mist is 80% less acidic at that forest than at its highest level 50 years ago. He says those early studies provided the groundwork for the 1990 Clean Air Act. And, and that's what science does. Um, we ask questions and look for answers to those questions and then uh, try to communicate that information to decision makers in hopes that actions can be taken to ameliorate the effects of the offending action or material. While the red spruce recovery is good news, 
Other species, like sugar maples growing on calcium-poor sites, are still threatened. And other parts of the ecosystem, such as higher-altitude lakes in the Adirondacks, are still too acidic. And part of the reason the red spruce are doing better is warmer winters due to climate change. But researchers say northern forests will likely suffer in the long run as the region continues to heat up. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm John Dillon. So we have scientists to thank for healthier forests, but let's give another shout-out to the American beaver, or Castor canadensis. Did you know that when Europeans first came to North America, there were about 400 million American beavers around the continent? By 1900, thanks to the fur trapping industry, that population was down to about 100,000. And as beavers disappeared, the landscape of North America changed dramatically, and arguably for the worse. Ben Goldfarb tracks the environmental effect that beavers have had on the world around them, as well as their unique history in his new book, Eager, The Surprising Secret Life of Beavers and Why They Matter. He joins us now to tell us why he became a self-proclaimed beaver believer. Ben, welcome back to Next. Thanks so much for having me. So why don't you start by reading us a, a section of the book to give us a little flavor. Sure. So this is from Chapter 2 about the elimination of beavers and how that changed North America. At a conference in 2000, the Nobel-winning scientist Paul Crutzen first blurted the word that has come to signify our present homo-dominated epoch, the Anthropocene. The term has become shorthand for humankind's biogeophysical fingerprints, impacts that will someday fascinate and confound alien archaeologists, the radioactive isotopes deposited by nuclear weapons testing, the rapid buildup of atmospheric carbon dioxide, the buried strata of compacted straws and Poland Springs bottles and Happy Meal toys. More than a series of observable phenomena, though, the Anthropocene is an idea that we have become the planet's principal agents of geological change, the shapers and destroyers of the modern world. Anthropocene isn't a happy word, but it does suggest awe, awe of ourselves. Beavers are not entirely human-like in their environmental effects. They don't burn fossil fuels. They don't hurl waves of plastic upon beaches. They don't turn prairies into cornfields. They're motivated by food and shelter, not acquisitiveness for its own sake. But I'd submit that the difference between our two species is one of magnitude, not of kind. For beavers, too, have permanently shaped the course of biology and geology. They have reformed rivers, kneaded meadows, filled valleys. We built our civilization atop the sediment they left behind. As Johann Verakamp found, the signature of beavers can today be read scrawled in the seafloor. Their ponds alter our climate, storing carbon in the form of, of buried organic matter and releasing it as methane. They even serve, as one study put it, as molecular geneticists. By choosing to gnaw down cottonwoods whose bark contains fewer distasteful tannins, they shape the genetic composition of riverside forests. What but the wolf's tooth whittled so fine, the fleet limbs of the antelope, the poet Robinson Jeffers asked in Bloody Sire, his meditation on violence and natural selection? No knock against Canis lupus's dagger-like canines, but it's the beaver's orange incisors that have been evolution's most consequential dental sculptors. Add it all up, and their impacts are continental in scale, history-changing in scope. Just as irradiated, elephant-sized cockroaches will someday scuttle through the ruins of downtown Los Angeles, so are we living in the world that beavers created. Christening a new era probably won't win me any friends among geologists, who can't even agree on when the Anthropocene began. But what the heck? Welcome to the Castoracene. <laughs> so beavers are a little bit more important, I suppose, to 
to this planet we call home than than many of us give them credit for. To tell us more about that, why why are they so important for for the ecosystem that they're in? Sure. So, the, of course, the fundamental beaver behavior, the thing we all know, is they build dams, right? And those dams store huge amounts of water. They create ponds and wetlands. And historically, that's what many, many streams on this continent looked like. You know, it was just a series of beaver ponds, kind of the the crystalline, clear, free-flowing, narrow, shallow stream that we think of today, kind of the prototypical babbling brook, you know, really wasn't the, the rule in many places. You know, streams were much messier, filled with dead wood and decaying organic matter and silt, you know, instead of free-flowing streams, we had these chains of ponds and wetlands in many places. And that was really the handiwork of beavers. They, they created a, an entirely different ecosystem uh, than the one that we're accustomed to today when their populations are much reduced. Talk about the history of beavers in New England and how they shaped the landscape that we have around here. Yeah, so the, so New England is, was sort of the place where the fur trade began. You know, the first European colonists arrived here, and, and beavers were integral first to their economies. The pilgrims, the first colonists, owed money to their creditors back in Europe. And, uh, you know, one of the few ways they could repay those debts was by shipping beaver pelts back to the old world. So beavers, you know, really made, made the Massachusetts Bay Colony and the Plymouth Colony possible. As those beavers got trapped out, their dams were no longer maintained, and the dams began to break down, and all of these ponds started draining out to the ocean. Uh, and what was left behind was this this rich layer of organic matter, these nice, flat, treeless, incredibly fertile footprints left behind by these derelict beaver ponds that had gone dry. And that was really some of the best farmland in the New World. That was incredibly rich, fertile soil in a, in a region that's generally pretty rocky and infertile. So beavers really helped make agriculture possible in the New World. Hmm. So we talk about these large numbers, and then they're they're wiped out almost as as many other species have been, very quickly because of, of human consumption in the late 18th century, they're almost all gone. How exactly did we bring them back? How did they, how did they return? Yeah, so in the early 1900s, we, we began to recognize that, that beavers were actually these hugely important animals. Plus, you know, trappers wanted to hunt them again. You know, they'd lost an important source of, of pelts and income. So a kind of a series of beaver relocation projects began all over the country. And in New England, you know, where beavers had been trapped out, the primary beaver source was actually the state of New York. In New York, you know, in, in 1904, the legislature passed this resolution basically calling for beaver reintroduction. The problem then was that, you know, there were, there were really no beavers to find, right? I mean, we were, you know, kind of at the, the beaver population nadir. It was hard to find a beaver at that point in history. So these New York state biologists went down to St. Louis for the Louisiana Purchase Centennial. It was this big sort of exposition celebrating the 100-year anniversary of the Louisiana Purchase. And down there, they bought seven live beavers from the Canadian delegation at the Louisiana Purchase Exposition. And they took those beavers back up to New York. They got a few more from Yellowstone. And they relocated about 20 beavers in 1904 and 1905 to the, the waters of New York. By 1915, just 11 years later, that population had exploded to 15,000 beavers from a, a seed population of 20 or so, plus a few beavers that were there already. So, you know, later that decade and in the 1920s, you know, those beavers began to disperse out of New York, crossing state lines, entering Massachusetts, Connecticut, Vermont. And, uh, there, you know, there were a few introductions as well in New England, but, you know, a lot of the beavers we have in the Northeast are descendants of that New York state population. We've heard stories in recent years about scientists making a stand and saying we have to reintroduce species in various parts 
of the country in order to balance out the ecosystem. But that seems like a very early attempt at that that worked really well. Yeah, people, you know, people were were pretty beaver aware back then. I think it's one of the one of the interesting things for me as, I, as I've researched this book has been seeing, you know, today we recognize beavers as these hugely important ecosystem service providers, right? They store water for us. Their ponds filter out water pollution, improving water quality. You know, they, they reduce erosion. They slow down floods. They provide all these valuable services. And, uh, you know, people actually knew that back at, back in the early 1900s. There was this this beaver awareness that we sort of lost again, I think, over the course of the 20th century. So the those biologists were pretty, they were pretty sharp people. They, they got it. <laughs> there are some people that, that you, you talk to, uh, leading experts in beaver coexistence, who live right here in New England, Mike Callahan and Skip Lyle, can you tell us who they are and what what they're doing exactly? So the traditional way that we handle beaver conflicts, you know, when a beaver clogs up a road culvert, let's say, and, and washes out the road, is we just trap those beavers out. We kill the beavers. And, you know, that can that can work temporarily, but it has two main problems. One is that you're eliminating a lot of these great ponds and wetlands that the beavers are creating. And the, and the second problem is, you know, you're, you're really just putting up a vacancy sign for the next family of beavers, <laughs> right? It's, as long as the habitat's good, they'll, fi- they'll find their way back there. Uh, so what, what Mike and Skip do is they say, you know, let's, let's manage these beaver conflicts in a different way, especially flooding. And their, their solution to that is this thing called a flow device. In Skip's case, it's called a, a beaver deceiver. It's basically this pipe and fence system that passes water through the dam and regulates the height of the pond. So you can say, hey, you know, I like having these beavers here. I appreciate all the good they're doing for the ecosystem, but, you know, I don't want to snorkel through my, my backyard <laughs> and, you know, have, have Microskip uh, install one of these, these flow devices and basically strike a compromise, a, a water level that's acceptable, ideally, to both rodent and human being. Okay. So in our region, in New England, roughly speaking, you don't have to have specific numbers of beavers, but how are they doing? Are, are, are they back? Are they as big a population as when the colonists first came here and started trapping and killing them? No, they're not. They're not quite that big, but they're but they're doing pretty well. I mean, I mean, the issue now is that you know we've de- we've developed so much habitat, right? We've we've drained so many wetlands, we've paved over, you know, so many floodplains and, and occupied former beaver habitat. You know, it's there's no way that beavers will ever return to their former abundance in, in New England. But, you know, their populations are pretty robust in, in most of the region. You know, certainly Massachusetts, most of Massachusetts is pretty is pretty close to biological carrying capacity, I would say. Most of the, most of the good habitats are, are occupied at this point, which is fantastic. You know, I think that New England's a, a great beaver success story. We've, we have a lot of, a lot of water here, unlike, unlike the West, where beaver populations are still pretty low. So we're, we're closer to full occupancy. But there are still lots of places where beavers, again, are just reflexively trapped out every time they cause a problem. I think that there are opportunities to get beavers back in, in some streams and wetlands in close proximity proximity to humans. You know, there are ways of addressing these problems and, and uh, helping beavers out still more in New England. So you've made such a great case for beavers as balancers of ecosystems and master builders. It's a fascinating species, but I just want, want you to end on just some cool things about beavers that people don't know. I mean, this the stuff that people who really care about these animals will tell people, I, I don't know, at a, at a bar or something, did you know this about beavers? Okay, tell us some stuff. <laughs> yeah, I'm always impressed by how well beavers are adapted to this really unique niche they have, right? I mean, they spend you know so much of their time in the water. It stands to reason they have some great sort of evolutionary adaptations to living in water. So, for example, they have this second set of transparent eyelids that they can close over their eyes that basically act as goggles underwater. They have a second set of fur-lined lips they can close behind their teeth so they can they can chew and drag branches underwater without getting water down their throats. 
Uh, and, you know, and they also have this really unique diet, right? They're, you know, they're eating the inner bark of, of trees, which is, a, you know, some pretty hard stuff to, to digest. So they end up eating their own poop, basically, to, to give their guts uh, kind of a second chance at, at getting every last dollop of nutrients out of their out of their fecal matter. So I think, you know, they, they've got some pretty cool adaptations for the, to this very unique life they have. Ben Goldfarb is an environmental journalist. He's the author of Eager, The Surprising Secret Life of Beavers and Why They Matter. You can find an excerpt of this book and a list of Ben's upcoming events around our region on nextnewengland.org. Ben, as always, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me. In the modern world, quiet is becoming a rare commodity. Not silence exactly, but the absence of human-made sounds in nature. The kind of quiet you can only get when you're deep, deep in the woods. NHPR's Brita Green reports on one man's attempt to get away from all the noise in the White Mountains. About a month ago, Dennis Follinsby took a hike in the Whites. He wanted to get away to find some peace and quiet. Or, as he puts it, You know, nature sounds and not people sounds. As he climbed out of the valley, the trickling of water from the brook below slowly faded away. The leaves rustled in the trees. But then, all of a sudden, he hit a ridge and everything changed. Little did he know, it was motorcycle week. You feel like you're in the middle of nowhere. You're, you know, kind of pushing through the forest. And then you hear like the coming through all the way from Lincoln. You're like, man. Today, we're retracing that hike. Follinsby's been walking these mountains for years, not just on trails, but also bushwhacking. He says he's been surprised at how far the hum of those motorcycles can carry. It's a problem because he enjoys the adventures as a meditative experience to get away from the stress of the work week. He rounds a bend. Here's a red squirrel chirping in the trees. Stop and listen, he says. This is a good spot. Right here, it's really quiet, which is kind of what I'm going for. Fonsby works a full-time job, gets one day a week to hike, maybe two if he's really lucky. And that's why he's been devoting himself this summer to mapping out the most isolated places acoustically so he can be really intentional about where he spends his time. What he's learning is these spots are not always where you'd expect. Hello. Hi. How you doing? As we continue on the trail, we meet a couple coming down the other direction. I describe what we're doing, looking for quiet, and one of them, Jerome Marcy from Dover, jumps in. I would suggest uh, West Bond. <laughs> yeah. That's about the most quiet mountain I've been on. I also Follinsby smiles and nods along. They're speaking the same language. I think people think about it, and it's usually on trails that I that I start to talk to people about that. and we come to the sim- like same or similar conclusions like oh yeah this peak's not as loud as other peaks and you know some peaks you know are just notorious for being loud later as we continue on we run into another group this one's notably louder than the other as we chat i asked joseph salvatore prezioso what he's been hearing today a lot of birds i hear birds chirping uh the occasional fly mosquito buzzing by my ear and the rustling of leaves. Turns out sound is something he thinks about quite a lot too. He lives in Boston, but he hates it, he says. All the noise drives him nuts. I was hiking last summer uh, down in uh, what's Cannon Mountain, right? It was a great hike, yeah. but you hear cars the entire time. You, like, you think you're in the wilderness, but you hear a monster truck going by. Mm-hmm. As all these guys know, finding true quiet is hard to do. The National Park Service did a big sound survey several years ago, mapping noise levels across the U.S. Follinsby's been playing with that Park Service data, trying to see if it'll help him out here. But he says their map doesn't have high enough resolution. And doesn't really give you 
um, the detail that might be useful because it shows that Lafayette has the same level of, of noise as, say, um, like Bond or something. So he's been making observations on the ground. And what he's learning is it can be key not only to get distance from a road, but also to be buffered by some good solid rock, a peak or a ridge, to create something of an acoustic nest. That's true even on a summit. If there are higher peaks around you, it'll be quieter than a spot at the same altitude, but with nothing around. This calculation can be tricky, though, because the whites are crisscrossed by highways. And then there's the Cog Railway going up the side of Mount Washington. But even the quest itself has been eye-opening for Fallensby. The more he's been listening, the more he hears. So there's no chickadees here now. We stop in a birch glen, the sun shining through. But if I hear one and we stay quiet for like 30 seconds, I'm not kidding you, I can summon like 20 chickadees. You just make a certain sound, he says. Like a little squeak sound, like... And then all of a sudden you'll hear one sort of like a flutter in and it'll start talking to you, kind of turning its head. And then it might fly away and then bring back a friend. (laughs) And then all of a sudden, I've had probably, I counted like 12 around me once. And like this orchestra of chickadee songs. He's tried to do this with other people around, but it never works. And no one believes him, he says. He sighs and keeps walking upward up the trail. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Brita Green. Coming up, we discuss how tariffs are affecting some of the biggest economies in our region. It's next. Next is made possible in part by our founding supporters who believe in the power of collaborative news coverage, including the John Merck Fund, supporting the New England News Collaborative in its coverage of climate and clean energy. Because of New England's shared border with Canada, our region has ties to our northern neighbors in ways that many Americans don't whether united by that physical border or some of the key industries we share, like lobsters, milk, or maple syrup. But that relationship is under strain. A trade war with steep tariffs on Canadian steel leveled by the Trump administration resulted in retaliatory tariffs by Canada on key products made in the U.S. That, plus increased border security, have changed how we interact with our northern neighbors and how they interact with New England. To learn more, we sat down with Consul General of Canada in New York, Phyllis Yaffe. I asked her about the state of the relationship now. Canada and the United States have the longest undefended border or open border between the two countries in the world. We have the biggest trading relationship. We are friends and allies. We have fought wars together side by side. We now sit in each other's military installations around the continent, protecting that continent. We are the best of friends, and we share values that are intrinsic in both America and Canada. But of course, we have issues that come up from time to time, and today I would say we have several of those issues that we need to resolve. But I would say the relationship is its a, an enduring one. It's been a strong one for a very long time, and I'm confident it will be. Are we in a trade war? Well, I don't use the word war because it's, it's really it really signals so much more than we actually are involved with today. But clearly we have, we had tariffs uh, applied to Canadian steel and aluminum that were very difficult for us and have caused enormous difficulty in Canada, but importantly have caused real difficulty here in Connecticut and in this part of the world. One of the things that we hear an awful lot about is the connected supply chains, the way in which uh, U.S. and Canadian manufacturers work together to build products, 
And along the long border that my listeners know very well, there's so much back and forth. People will go shopping across the border in in Canada or the U.S. What are you hearing specifically from these border regions about how people are being affected in their day-to-day lives around these tariffs? Well, it's early, but I think what people are starting to see is, is slower crossings of the border. People worried about their visas if they live in one side or the other of the of the nations. I think really at the end of the day that that cross-border production, it defines how we trade with each other. And in essence, we don't. it's not actually trade as much as we make things together. Before imposing uh, the steel and aluminum tariffs, uh, President Trump suggested that there was quite a bit unfair about the U.S. relationship with Canada in, in terms of trade. And one of the things he pointed out was around dairy. And we've covered the dairy industry in Vermont and Quebec a bit here on our program. Our reporter in Vermont from Vermont Public Radio, John Dillon, he did a story about how different life is for dairy farmers uh, in the U.S. versus Canada. This was back in April. Let's listen to one of the farmers from Quebec he talked to. His name is uh, Gerard Vemmerlin. Go in Quebec. Drive around in the, on the country, in the countryside. Look at the farms. The tin is painted. The tractors are put away. There are nice farms in the States. I'm not saying they're all run down, but there's a lot more farms that are run down in the States than in Canada. And these farmers told a story of how south of the border, it was very hard for them to do their work. They were often relying on migrant labor, often undocumented labor from Mexico. Uh, They're not able to get loans because they're not sure that they're going to be in business next year. Uh, Whereas north of the border, the, the Canadian farmers were able to do their business. Canadian farmers back in April getting about 24 U.S. dollars for 100 pounds of milk. Vermonters getting about 14 U.S. dollars for that same amount. And President Trump and others have said this is because Canada has price supports in place. They limit production uh, in Canada, and it creates an unfair playing field for those dairy farmers on both sides of the border. How do you respond to that? I think it's a it's a fascinating example of missing the the bigger picture looking at the smallest piece of it. Let's step back and look at dairy altogether. Um, it, last year, the United States exported $470 million worth of dairy to Canada, and Canada exported to the United States $130 million. So there's a $335 million difference. America has a giant surplus with Canada of exporting dairy to us. And we export some, but very little. So I would say, I guess, there's some way that dairy farmers are finding a way to sell into Canada. Now, the essence of the way we control the dairy industry in Canada, which we have for almost 50 years, is called supply management. We have quotas. We assign it to farmers. They fulfill their quotas. They don't produce more, and they know what their market is going to be. It is the way we support the industry. And by the way, there are many industries both of our countries support to keep alive and I think we'd all agree that dairy is one that each country should have. The United States does it a totally different way. The farm bill, which is larger than the economy of Canada, is the way that you support dairy farmers or farmers in general. And so farmers get, you know, the amount they get out of the farm bill to keep them in business. It may not be enough or it may be too much in some areas. That's hard for me to judge. But it is a different system. I I will just say that last year, America produced 100 million gallons of 
milk that was dumped into the ground. So, you know, overproduction is a big problem, but it's not just an American problem or a Canadian problem. It's a worldwide problem. We've seen a glut of dairy all over the world. Consumers are choosing other things. I was in Stockholm a few weeks ago, and an American couple sat down at a restaurant beside me and ordered coffee with oat milk. And the man was perfectly happy to go get them some oat milk, which I just want to remind people is not milk. It has nothing to do with a cow. And so when the whole world is changing how they consume dairy, I think we all have to get together and ask, well, what is the future of the dairy industry? I think we need to support it. I think we need to maintain it. But obviously, we've chosen a different system that works for us. And America has managed to supply a lot of dairy to Canada over the years. Could we turn a bit to the conversation about energy and, and how the United States and Canada rely on each other for energy and how things are, are connected? What do you see as that relationship right now between, between the two countries? We are America's biggest supplier of energy. We are a safe country, a reliable country. Rule of law applies in Canada. You know where the source of the energy comes from, whether it is oil, gas, or hydropower. Those are reliable commodities that Canada exports to the United States. And I see it as one of the things that's totally integrated into our the two countries. You know, there are pipelines that go both ways from Canada to the United States and the United States to Canada. So we are supplying the energy across this border that keeps us, both countries, well supplied. We have an integrated electric grid that when it works is perfect, mostly works. You know, we are really an interdependent energy part of the world. And I believe that because the United States is way more self-sufficient than it ever has been, but because it still uses lots of Canadian energy in parts of the country, that these are some of the, the economic reasons that we are so closely aligned, so integrated, and so dependent on each other. The New England states have been making a push in the last several years to incorporate even more hydropower from Quebec. Earlier, you were saying that the United States, when it comes to dairy production, has this problem of overproduction. There's so much milk that we're dumping it. Well, Canada's hydro dams seem to be producing so much electricity, you're kind of trying to get rid of it yourselves. And and you've chosen to send a lot of it south to New England. And I think you found willing buyers. I wonder if you could explain a little bit how Hydro-Quebec works and is able to produce so much energy that you can make it cheap and available for all the people of that province, other parts of Canada, and also be able to sell it to the United States. Well, it's a giant infrastructure program. It has been going on for a very long time. Quebec has the largest hydropower plants in North America and has the capability to not just supply Quebec with low-cost energy, but is now exporting it, as you said, to Ontario, obviously to Newfoundland over the years, and uh, be able to export it to the northeastern United States at pretty low cost and, and efficiently. And of course, it's green energy. It is not polluting energy. It is a natural energy that's created and re- and renews. So it is both good for the environment, low cost, and plentiful. There have been o- over the decades, though, some concerns about the environmental impact of, of hydropower in that it is considered renewable by many but it has a larger environmental footprint in terms of fish populations, in terms of flooding and uh, regions that have been changed over time, and the impact on the First Nations people of, of Canada. The amount of power that comes out of that hydro system 
many people in the United States feel it keeps us then from investing in what many say are true renewables, solar, wind, other ways of harnessing energy that, that don't come from far away, don't require right. long throw transmission lines from Canada, and also don't have some of the environmental impact that hydro does. What, what, what's your response to some of those concerns? I guess the first is that the the flooding was done a very, very long time ago. And so, you know, it's sort of, I would say, water under the bridge kind of. Sorry about that. But, uh, I mean, it's done. And um, the the resources, the, the people who live there, although there weren't many, but there are some, have obviously had to move or been, have chosen to move because of the, the hydro dams. But the the thought that it is creating displacement today is really an unfair um, analysis of the situation. It isn't, that isn't the case. I guess I would say, you know, all our government has been very, very supportive of improving renewable energy for everybody. And so finding a way to bring together hydro, wind, solar, and any other source of energy that will allow us to continue to to move to a more renewable energy base. Right now in Canada, about 80% of all electricity comes from renewables. So we feel we're sort of, we're on that road. It isn't perfect, but we're getting there. And to incorporate all of the different diverse systems that will allow us to get to 100%, that's, that's our goal. Phyllis Yappi is Consul General of Canada in New York. And she joined us today on Next. Thanks so much for being here. I really appreciate it. It's a pleasure. While that U.S.-Canada border relationship might be trickier than it used to be, many communities in New England and Canada share all kinds of resources. Last week, we heard from Vermont Public Radio's John Dillon about a group of marathon swimmers who swam across a lake that lies both in Canada and the U.S. to raise awareness about international borders. This week, we're going to take you to another shared space, a theater where a troupe called the Borderline Players performs. What makes the shows unique is the location. Audience members can see the show in the U.S. or in Canada, depending on where they sit. Vermont Public Radio's Amy Coldnoise has our story. If you look up the address for the Haskell Free Library and Opera House, you'll find it's both on Caswell Avenue in Derby Line, Vermont, and at 1 Church Street in Stansted, Quebec. Outside the building, the international border is marked by a row of potted plants and decorative stones. Inside the building, the first-floor library serves patrons in both countries, as does the second-story opera house, which is home to the borderline players. Chris Planetta is president of the Theatre Troupe's Board of Directors. He describes the theatre, which opened in 1904. Well, we're in a, a turn-of-the-century opera house. The building's 100 years old. There's uh, solid wooden seats everywhere. There's a, a balcony section that's uh, very decorative. Uh, there's a painted curtain right behind us. There's a line physically separating two countries in the middle of the floor. To be clear, you don't need a passport to sit in a section outside of your home country. In fact, in some seats, you can be sitting in the U.S. and stretching your legs into Canada. For the past quarter century, the Haskell has been home to the international theater company QNEK Productions. When QNEK founder Lynn Limer retired last year, the borderline players formed to take the company's place. We still had people interested in being in shows. We still had the facility, the, the Haskell Opera House, and we still had interest in people wanting to come and see shows here. So all the other pieces of the puzzle were still in place. We just needed someone to keep the ball rolling. 
So Planeta stepped in and did just that. And without missing a beat, the new company planned its inaugural three-show season. Both Planeta and board member Ross Murray are from Stansted. Murray says the borderline players address a particular need in that town. There's a vibrant English theatre scene in Montreal, but outside Montreal gets very sparse to find English theatre. So we're filling that void. But Murray is quick to add that the community for this community theatre troupe is as international as the building it calls home. It's a really unique building in terms of not just sitting on the border, but in terms of the community it serves. American, Canadian, French, English, Quebecers, Vermonters. So it's a real hybrid. While the Haskell is celebrated for being a unique public building intentionally situated on an international border, Murray says that can pose challenges. Even just building sets, we get supplies from Vermont, we bring them in here, and, and then you know, we were struggling with, well, what do we do with materials? Where do we put it? Can we bring it to Canada and store it somewhere? Or do we have to find a place in the U.S.? And So there's always a struggle to just trying to make things work logistically around here. With the first show of the Borderline Players premiere season under its belt, Planeta says the troupe is now in rehearsal for Little Shop of Horrors, a musical comedy that features a man-eating plant. We have uh, plants, that, well, plant puppets that have been purchased and on their way from here from Winnipeg. <laughs> Tickets are for sale in both countries and online, and they've been rehearsing for a couple of months. The final production of the season will be Agatha Christie's The Mousetrap, which takes the stage in October. And after this season wraps up, the borderline players plan to be back for a second season next spring. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Amy Coldnoise. Next is produced by Lily Tyson. The executive producer of Next is Katie Tolarski. Our digital producer is Carlos Mejia. Our theme music is by composer Todd Merrill. You can hear more of his music at toddmerrill.com. Thanks also to Goodnight Blue Moon for their song, New England. The New England News Collaborative is funded in part by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting with support from Douglas Stone and Mary Schwabstone through the Smart Family Foundation of New York and the Melville Charitable Trust. It's powered by WBUR Boston, Vermont Public Radio, New Hampshire Public Radio, Maine Public Radio, Rhode Island Public Radio, WSHU Public Radio Group, New England Public Radio, and Connecticut Public Radio.